The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Uh, this is the second time we are having this class. We had it last year in a smaller version. That was for six units of credit. And uh, we had it once a week. And uh, mostly practitioners from the industry, from Morgan Stanley, talking about examples how math is applied in modern finance. Um, okay. Is it okay? Okay. Yeah. And uh, so we got some good response last year. So with the support of the math department, we decided to expand this class to be 12 units of credit and have twice a week. So we have every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon from 2.30 to 4, as you know, in this classroom. And uh, so last year, Dr. Uh, Vasily Estrella and I, I'm, by the way, I'm Jake Shaw. And uh, that's Dr. Vasily, and we were the main instructors last year. Now we doubled it up to four main instructors. Uh, that's Dr. Uh, Peter Kempthorne and uh, Dr. Chumbon Lee. The reason we doubled up the main instructors is we have newly added math lectures, uh, mostly focusing on uh, uh, li from linear algebra, probability to statistics, and some stochastic calculus. So give you the foundation to understand the math uh, will be uh, used in those uh, examples uh, in the lecture taught by uh, the practitioners from the industry. And uh, the purpose of this course is really to give you a sampling manual to see uh, how mathematics is applied in modern finance and help you to decide if this is a field you would Thanks be... Uh, using WebEx. Please visit our website at www.webex.com. Okay, <laughs> you, you heard that. <laughs> and uh, so hopefully this will give you enough information to decide this is the field you like to pursue in your future career. In fact, last year, uh, when we finished the class, we had a few students uh, coming um, to work in the industry. Some work at Morgan Stanley, some work at elsewhere. And uh, so that's, that's really the goal. And uh, at the same time, obviously, you will further uh, solidify your math knowledge and learn uh, uh, a new content. And uh, we put the prerequisite uh, about the math part a bit later. Uh, so I will use today's uh, first lecture's time to give you an introduction, really to prepare you some basic background knowledge about the financial markets. Um, some terminologies will be used, which you may not have heard before. So before I get into the introduction, I may always like to know who are actually in the classroom. So let me ask you a few questions. You just need to uh, raise your hands and uh, so I know roughly what kind of background and uh, where you are. So how many undergraduate students are here? So I would say 80%. Okay, statistics. <laughs> that's a p how many graduate students are here? Just to verify. Okay, yeah, that's about right. 20%. And uh, how many students are in finance and business major? Just one. Okay. And uh, how many of you are in math major? Most of you. Okay. How many of you are engineering major? Okay, I feel. How many of you actually are from uh, uh, other universities? So, okay, great. Because uh, last year we had quite a few. So I want to specifically tell you that you're very welcome to attend the classes here, right? So um, it's open door. And uh, last year, I remember we had a couple of uh, students from Harvard. That's where I actually work right now. And, uh, but uh, my, um, I, did, I forgot to mention that uh, even that, but I'm affiliated with uh, both the math department and the Sloan School here. So, um, so anyway, thanks for that. We will be doing a bit more polling along the way, mainly to get feedback of uh, how you feel about the class. Last year, we had it online. So if you feel the class is going too fast, or the math part is going too slow, or the finance part is a bit confusing, and the easiest way is really just to send us emails. 
and uh, which you will find from uh, the class website. So anyway, today. All, all of us have MIT emails. Yes. Yeah. We, we all have MIT emails, which are listed yes. uh, on the website. Yep. And uh, obviously, we have offices here. You can easily stop by uh, Peter and Chumbun's uh, offices. And uh, Vasily and I probably will be less often on campus, but we'll be here quite often. And uh, definitely, I'd love to be more. So anyway, I will start today's lecture with a story and a quiz at the end. Don't worry, <laughs> it's not a real quiz. Just going to ask you some questions. You can raise your hand and uh, uh, give your answer. But let me start with uh, my story. This is actually my personal story. Uh, I, I, I want to tell you why I tell you the story later. But the story actually was um, in the mid-90s. I w just uh, left uh, Solomon Brothers. That was my first uh, financial industry job uh, to go to Morgan Stanley in New York to join the options trading desk. So the first day, I sat down. I opened the trading book. I found something was missing. And uh, so I turned around. I asked my desk quant. I said, where is the Vega report? OK, so I, let me show you. So that's the story. So, and I'm obviously not going to tell you the story of Pi or Life of Pi, right? That's not a financial <laughs> story. Or the rest of the story, Alpha, Beta, Delta, Gamma, Theta, which you will learn from uh, Peter and uh, Chumbo and Vasily's classes. So I'm going to talk about Vega. So, I, so by the way, before I tell you the story, what's unique about Vega on this list? It's not a Greek letter. That's right. OK. So I turned around and asked my desk quant, I said, where's the Vega report? But how many of you actually know what Vega is? OK, a lot of people know. So anyway, I'm not going <laughs> to. Just for the people who haven't heard about it before, it's a measurement about a book or portfolio or position sensitivity to volatility. Right? So what is the volatility, which again, you will learn more in the rigorous terms, uh, what's, how it's defined in mathematics. But the meaning of it is really a measurement or indication of how volatile or how, what's the standard deviation of a price can change over time. Okay, just that's all you need to know right now. Uh, I'm not going to ask you questions later. So my desk quant looked at me, said, "You know, this is supposed to be an options trading desk." So he looked at me, kind of puzzled. So instead of answering my question, he handed over me a. Uh, a training manual for new employees and new analysts. So I opened the training, uh, training manual and uh, looked it through. I actually found uh, my answer. So actually at Moon Stanley, this is not called Vega. It's called Kappa. So now remember, so called it Kappa. Kappa is actually a Greek letter. So further, I look at on the same page, there was actually a footnote, which I copied down. So the footnote about uh, why it's called Kappa at, the, at Morgan Stanley. Kappa is also called Vega by some uneducated traders at the Solomon Brothers. <laughs> That's where I came from. I just joined. They have mistaken Vega as a Greek letter after gambling at Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so that was my first day. So I obviously, I learned how to uh, call Kappa very quickly, because I came from Solomon Brothers. And uh, I called Kappa in the last 17 years. But you will hear people calling it the Vega. Obviously, I probably more people calling it the Vega. But anyway, so that's my first day at Moon Stanley. But why did I tell you this story? Right? What point I try to make? So this story is actually. When you think about it, mathematical or quantitative finance is a rather new field. A lot of these terms were newly introduced. And the pricing model of options, as you know, right, was introduced in, at the Black Shows in the 70s, or some of the groundwork maybe done a bit earlier. But it's not like finance was a quantitative profession to start with. 
So what we witnessed in the last 30 years was really a transformation of, tra of the trading profession coming from mostly undereducated traders. Some of them typically joined the firms in the mailroom and became trader later on. That's a typical career path. And to nowadays, if you walk on the trading floor, you look at the trade, you talk to the traders, most of them have advanced degrees. And quite a few of them have very you know, high training in mathematics and computer science. So what has changed over the last 20 or 30 years? I mean, I myself personally you know, was probably one of the data point experiencing this change. And uh, you know, I certainly didn't expect I would be doing this when I was at MIT, but I did that in the last uh, you know, 20 years. So the point I'm trying to tell you is before you dive into any details of mathematics or any concept in finance in this class, just bear in mind this is a field developed in the last mostly 30 years or even shorter. And what you really need to ask questions is, is not really is the right or wrong in mathematics? Is it right or wrong in physics? So how the concepts are established or defined and verified? Because this is a field, the transformation about the participants, products, models, methodology, everything are changing very rapidly. Even nowadays, it's still changing. So with that, I will give you some background of how the financial markets are actually started. And uh, that's really the history part of this, uh, uh, this industry. So when we talk about markets, we know in early days, right, people need to exchange goods. You have something I don't have. I have something you don't have. So there's exchanges, right? Then it becomes centralized. There are stock exchanges, futures exchanges all over the world. Then these products will be listed as securities on these exchanges. That's one way of trading, which is centralized. Obviously, in the last 10, 15 years, now we have ECNs, electro electronic platforms, trade over you know, even larger volume of those trades. So financial products is uh, really just one form of trading. And when you think of, I mean, there are many other ways of trading, aside from exchanges. One of them, which is called OTC, is over-the-counter, meaning two counterparties agree to do a trade without really subject to the exchange rules or the underlying trading agreement does not have to be a securitized product or standardized or you know, whatever ways you define it. And the different regions have different exchanges and markets as well. And they typically specialize in local products, local company stocks, local um, bonds, and uh, local currencies. So there are many different uh, forms. So again, what's in common? That's the question you need to ask. Also, you need to know the specifics. And the currencies, money itself, are also cha uh, traded. Right? So, and uh, that's where different uh, uh, currencies issued by different countries. So when we talk about trading stocks, you know, there are also people trade baskets of stocks, trade groups of stocks together. And that's stock uh, index or indices. So that there are different products. Now, how the stock get listed on the stock exchange? Uh, they go through IPO, initial public offering process. So when a company ch changes from private to public, it goes through this IPO process. It's called the primary market primary listing, and uh, once the stock is listed on the exchange and it becomes traded in the market, we call it secondary trading. So that's not, uh, after the primary market. And uh, equity or stock is one form of trading or one form of financial products. What are other forms? Loans, actually debt products are more generic than equity products. When you started uh, thinking about what is really the f 
what is really finances about? It's really about someone has money, someone doesn't. Someone has money to lend out, someone needs to borrow money. So that's loan. Loan is really a private agreement between two counterparties or multiple counterparties. When you securitize them, it becomes bonds. And uh, when you look at bonds, every government right, issue large sovereign debt. So US government has large outstanding US Treasury uh, debt, bonds, notes, bills. And uh, corporates have issued a lot of debt uh, product as well. They borrow money. When they need to build a new factory or expand, universities borrow money. Right? When MIT needs to build a new building, you know, some of the money will make, come from the endowment support. Some will come from uh, you know, some other form of uh, research budget. Or some will come from uh, you know, debt financing, right? just borrow from the public. Local governments, states, right? counties even. Right? So they, they have various forms. So that's that product. Commodities, actually, you know, metal, energy, agriculture uh, products, all traded, right? mostly in the futures format and some in physical format, meaning you take deliveries. When you actually buy and sell, you build a warehouse to take them, you, uh, you know, ship a uh, tank right, to store above the ocean. And the real estate, you buy and sell houses, you know, 2008 financial crisis, if you read about it, this has a lot to do with the real estate market, the mortgages, and asset-backed securities. And uh, so I'm not trying to give you all the definition, dumping the information on you, but I like you, at least you're hearing it once today, and then you have more interest you can read on the side. So asset-backed securities is when you have an asset, you basically issue a debt with the asset backing it. And uh, how, how do you rate the asset's uh, risk level? And what's the income stream, cash flow? And during, before 2008 financial crisis, as you heard, large amount of CMBS, commercial, um, basically it's a commercial real estate backed uh, you know, securities, mortgage securities, and the re residential as well. And further of all these, you heard probably a lot about the derivative products. So that started with swaps, options, and the structured products. It become more tailor-made for either investors or borrowers right, to structure the products in a way to suit their needs. And uh, some of the, the complexity of those structured products you know, become quite high and the mathematics involved in pricing them and the risk management become rather challenging. So let me come back to the players in the market. One large sector of player, one large type of player is really bank. So there are Essentially, after 1933, uh, Glass-Steagall uh, legislation, uh, there were two main types of banks. One is called commercial bank, the other is investment bank. Commercial bank is supposedly you know, taking deposits and lend out the money and uh, doing you know, more commercial services. A investment bank is supposed to focus on the capital markets, raising capital, trading, and uh, um, asset management. But obviously after 1999, this, uh, you know, the Glass-Steagall was uh, repealed, right? There's no longer uh, that. Some people blame that and probably for a very good reason for the cost of uh, 2008 uh, financial crisis. But I want to tell you how currently investment banks are organized. So, I mean, I, Vasily just mentioned he works in the fixed income, right? And uh, so banks typically organized by you know, institutional business and asset management. So within the institutional uh, client business, it has typically three main parts. Fixed income, which trade the debt <coughs> and the derivative products. Equity, trade stocks and the derivative products. And IBD stands for 
investment banking division, which really covers corporate finance, raising capital, listing a stock, IPO, and merger and acquisition, and advisory. So that's, that's how banks are organized. Outside banks, other players, basically the, the asset managers, are obviously a very big force in the financial markets. So the question a lot of people ask is, is this a zero-sum game? Right? I'm sure you, you heard this many times. So in the financial markets, some people win, some people lose. I mean, a lot of times, you know, it depends on the specific products you trade, the market you're in. It is a lot of times you know, uh, pretty net zero. But why, why do we need financial markets? Right? I mean, this, this comes back to what I described before, because something existed, actually there's a need for it. It's really the need to bridge between the lenders and the borrowers. That's really coming down to the essential uh, relationship. So investors who have money need to have better yield or better return, better interest. In the current environment, when you have a savings account, you know you don't really earn much at all. And so you would have to take more risk to generate more return, or even have a longer horizon uh, CDs or other, other type of products or trade the stocks. Right? So that's when somebody has money. When you trade stocks, you're essentially, you know, you're buying a stock, you give the money somewhere, supposedly, you know, go to the company. The company use the money uh, you know, to uh, generate a better return. And for the borrowers, whoever needs money, they need to have access to the capital. Right? So they, obviously, different borrowers have different risks. Some people borrow money never return, right? so, or never generate any returns, or never even return the principal. And uh, so the trade between lenders and the borrowers is, again, essentially the main driver of the financial markets. So a few more words about uh, market participants. So banks and so-called dealers play the role of market making. What is market making? So when you or some end user go to the market, wants to buy or sell, you typically, if there's no market, you don't really find the match. And some of the, the products you want to buy or sell may not necessarily be liquid. So the dealers step in the middle, make you a price, say, okay, you want to buy or sell, I can <coughs> tell you, you know, this stock, I make you a price, you know, 99 uh, uh, cents, and uh, uh, that's my bid, 95 cents, that's my offer, right? So that's the price I'm willing to buy or sell. So that's called, they, but what the result of the trade, the dealer actually takes the other side of your trade, so they take principal risk in this case. So that's the difference between dealers and the brokers. So brokers don't really take principal risks. If you want to buy, some, uh, buy something or sell something, if I'm a broker, so I don't make your price, I go to the market makers. I actually put two people together to uh, kind of a matchmaking, make that trade happen. So I earn a commission. So that's a broker's role. So obviously, there are individual investors, retail investors, same meaning. Uh, mutual funds who actually manage uh, you know, public investors' money typically in a long-only uh, format, meaning they long <coughs> means you buy something. So you don't really short sell a particular uh, security. Insurance companies have large assets. They need to generate return, generate cash flow to meet their liability uh, needs. So they need to invest. And the pension funds, same thing. As inflation goes higher, they need to pay out more to the retirees. So where do you get a return, right? Sovereign wealth fund, similarly, endowment funds, they all have the uh, same situation, have capital needs to deploy and make better return. So there's other type of uh, players, hedge funds. So how many of you have heard hedge funds? OK, good. Almost everyone. Okay, so I'm not, uh, and Peter mentioned that he used to work at a hedge fund. So, <laughs> and um, so there are 
different types of strategies, which I will dive into a bit more. But hedge fund play the role in the market. They basically find opportunities to profit from inefficient uh, market positioning or pricing. Right? So they have different strategies. And the private equity, I mean, different type of funds, they basically look to take a uh, invest in companies and uh, you know, either take them private or invest in a private uh, equity form to hopefully improve the company's prof profitability and uh, then cash out. And governments obviously have a huge impact on the mar market. So we know in the financial crisis, government intervened. And not only that, at the normal market condition, government always have a very large impact on the market because they are the policymakers. They decide the interest rate and interest rate curve and the different policies they push out obviously will generate different outlook for the future markets, therefore profitability. Then the corporate hedges and the liabilities. When corporates borrow money, they create some risk. So they need to be sensitive to the market changes. So to summarize, the types of trading, the first type is really just hedging. That means you're not proactively adding risk to what you have. You already have some exposure. Let's say, um, just give you an example. Let's say you borrow money. You bought a house. So you have a mortgage. And uh, so let's say it's um, you know, uh, floating rate uh, mortgage payments. And you're worried about the interest rate going higher. Right? So you can lock that rate in into the fixed rate format. Or you can find ways to, to hedge your exposure. Or your corporate has a large income coming from uh, Europe. So you have euros coming in, but you're not sure if euro will trade stronger to the US dollar in the future or trade weaker. Right? If, you trade, it will be, if you think it will be stronger, you just leave it. But if you think it will, will trade weaker, so you may want to hedge it, meaning you want to sell euro and buy US dollars. And so that's the hedging type. The second type, as I mentioned, is a market maker. So market maker also takes principal risk, but the main source of profit is really to earn the bid offer. I gave you the example of 90 cents bid, 95 cents offer. So that's what the market maker is trying to profit from. But obviously, they have residual risks sitting on the book. Not every trade is matched. So how to optimize those group of trades, that's what market maker is doing. Most of the banks, dealers are market makers. I mean, in the new um, regu regulation, obviously, proprietary trading is, some, you know, is banned. right? And so the third type is really the proprietary trader, the risk uh, taker. So these are the hedge funds or some portfolio managers. They need to focus on generating return and with control the risk. So that's where the beta and alpha, the concept comes in. So if you're a portfolio manager, I mean, some people say you, you don't really, you know, don't worry, don't go pick any stocks, just buy S&P 500 index fund, you know, very cheap. You can pay very little cost to do it. That's true. So, but if you want to beat the S&P 500 index, let's assume we call S&P 500 index fund is uh, asset B. So the return of that, R of B, that's the return of that index. Then you have a portfolio A. Your you time series of return of your asset A, obviously you can do linear regression Right, you're, a lot of you are mass major here, and you can find a correlation between those two time series. So the, how the two returns are, are related in a simplified form, so you can say this actually somehow it came out, it's supposed to be alpha and a beta, but it turned out to be uh, you know, in, uh, the, the letters. But so in a short description, beta is really kind of, you know, just think as a, the correlated move with the, the other asset. Alpha is really the, the, you know, the difference. In return, 
uh, format, you want to beat S&P 500. So you want to basically have certain tracking of this index, but you want to return more on top of that. So let me just go in bit details of how each type of trade actually occurs. So when we talk about hedging, I mentioned the currency example. Let me give you another example. There are a lot of uh, people issue bonds or issue debt. So this example I'm going to give you is, let's think about Australian uh, corporate. Because interest rate in Australia is higher than in Japan. So <coughs> typically, people like to borrow money in Japan because you pay smaller interest and invest it in Australia. You earn higher uh, interest rate. So let me ask you a question. Who can tell me why don't people just do that all day long, just borrow from Japan and invest it in uh, Australia? Then that interest rate, I'm giving you an example of a difference is about 3.5% for the 10-year, roughly, you know, 10-year uh, swap rates. Why don't, yeah, go ahead. Right. Because you invest in the Australian Aussie, right, Australian dollar. The Australian dollar may become weaker to the yen. You may lose all your profit or even more, right? And further, if everybody plays the same game, then when you try to exit, you, you have the adverse impact of your trade. So let's say you, you think that's the right time to do it, but then at one time you wake up, you said, huh, I think too many people are doing this. I want to hedge myself. So what do you do? Yep. So you try to lock in, right? So basically, you uh, you sell the Australian dollars, uh, buy the Japanese yen, or on the interest rate terms, you say you you basically pay the Aust Australian dollar in the swap leg and receive yen. So that in the you, this involves foreign exchange trade, interest rate swap and the cross-currency swap. So your answer about uh, currency forward is roughly right, but it obviously involves a bit more uh, in actual execution. So that's just give you an example. Even you are not a finance guy, you know, you work in a corporate, you just do import, export, or building a factory, or you, know, you have to know actually how, what the exposure is. So risk management nowadays becomes pretty widespread responsibility. It's not just you know, the corporate treasury's responsibility. So that's on the hedging side. Obviously, if you're um, Intel, for example, right, you sell a lot of uh, chips uh, overseas. And your income, actually Intel does have a lot of overseas income sitting outside the states. So the exposure to them is if the exchange rate fluctuates, dollar becomes a lot stronger, they actually lose money. So they need to think about you know, how to hedge the revenue produced overseas. And uh, obviously, if you are import exporters, that's even more apparent. And if you're in entering in a merger deal, you, one company is buying another, uh, you need to hedge your potential currency exposure and your interest rate exposure. And whatever is on the, on the, on the assets or the liability or the balance sheet, you need to hedge your exposure. So we talk about the uh, hedging activity. Let's talk about a bit of market making. So if it's a simple, transparent product, everybody pretty much knows where the price is. Right? So if you buy Apple stock, I think a lot of people know pretty much where it is. You, you may even have it on your uh, cell phone, right? Know where that stock is. Um, but if it's not transparent, so what do you do? So if I, instead of asking you where Apple is, probably you're going to tell me 495 today? Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, but if I ask you instead, what is the call option on uh, Apple stock in the, you know, two months time? Uh, I'll give you a strike, let's say 500. Right, so you're probably less transparent. So that um, market maker comes in to provide that liquidity and then takes the risk, then manage the book by balancing those Greeks, which I mentioned earlier, delta 
which describes the kind of the linear uh, relationship of this whole book to the underlying stock or underlying whatever currency. That's called a delta. Gamma is really the change of the portfolio, take the derivative uh, to, the, to the delta or to the underlying spot. So that's um, the second order derivative, right? The delta is the first order. So gamma you take, so now you have curvature or convexity coming in. Uh, and theta is really, you know, on, nothing changes in the market, nothing changes in your position. How your trading book is carrying or bleeding away money. And uh, we talk about the volatility exposure with Vega. And on top of that, what are the tail risks? You know, how, what, are you, what are the events can actually get you into big trouble? Right? So people use value at risk. So you will hear this VAR concept in some of the lectures, and which is also obviously very important the concept. I think Peter will, uh, or Chumbo will, probably Peter will teach. Uh, then uh, capital, right? Uh, how much capital are you using? It becomes a very important issue nowadays. And balance sheet, again, you have asset, you have liability. How, how do you leverage? How much leverage you have? Before the crisis, for example, a lot of the banks leveraged up 40 times, meaning when you have $1, you had $40 exposure. So when the market moves a little, you get wiped out. That's, that's really what amplified in the 2008 financial crisis. And how do you measure? The, the asset in balance sheet when you have derivatives, right, rather than a straightforward notional. So a lot of a quantitative type of people like to focus a bit more on the risk-taking side. Because people heard stories about the successful cases of some hedge funds using high math, right? They generate uh, very impressive returns. And uh, they seem to have an edge. So a lot of people focus on trading strategies. Right? So that, that's, that falls into the category of proprietary trading or, or risk taking. So that you can just simply do in directional trading strategies. Just go long or short the stock. Right? That's very simple. You they are the, those so-called gut traders, gut feeling. Go with the, your gut. You don't even think. You say, I'm, I'm eating. I'm eating um, you know, uh, curry today, so I, I go long. I'm eating rice tomorrow, so I go short. <laughs> um, so this arbitrage. Arbitrage is really to find the relationships between prices and try to profit from uh, those relationship uh, uh, mispricing. This is actually very interesting. This, um, not many people focus on arbitrage, you know, because when a lot of people are gut traders, you essentially just watch your own market. You don't really care what's going on. If you trade gold uh, in the States, I mean, obviously, the gold price happened in Asia and in Europe matters, right? So if, if you're trading the same thing. If they are not priced the same way, you can profit from the difference. And uh, uh, that's just a simple example. But a spot pr price versus forward price that's a deterministic relationship. It's a mathematical relationship. If that relationship breaks down, you can also profit. So there are many examples of mathematical relationship which gives you the arbitrage opportunity. I mean, the other type is called a value trader or relative value uh, strategies. You, instead of you know, think there's a deterministic temporary mathematical relationship you look at a bit of longer term in the horizon, trying to determine what is really the underlying value of a particular instrument, then trade on the relative value. <coughs> I mean, obviously, there are successful value investors out there. And the systematic trader uh, builds computer models. Uh, one example is trend following, right? So just follow the price trend. I mean, that used to be an effective uh, strategy for some time. But when a lot of people are doing the same thing, that becomes much less effective. Or momentum, same things. Stat op, right? Finding statistics, stat statistical relationship among large number of stocks, then you know trade uh, at the higher frequency. And uh, fundamental analysis, you're really trying to understand what's going on in the world. What is the uh, trade balance? 
what is the earning potential of a, you know, of a company, what's the trade balance of a country, what is the policy change, what does it mean when Federal Reserve announced they're going to taper the quantitative uh, easing, right? What's the, why the stock market sold off in the last uh, couple of months, especially why stocks in India, Brazil, Indonesia sold out more, right? Why, why is that? So you have to go through those fundamental analysis. And, uh, and there are special situations. Some companies are going through uh, particular uh, difficulties. Assets are priced very cheaply. So there are firms out there. I mean, you probably heard, uh, you know, uh, Bain Capital and many others, right? They focus on these private equity and special situation opportunities. So what, has, what have all these to do with mathematics, right? Where does math come in? How do you use math? So I want to give you some uh, aspects of that. So from my personal experience, I joined the market, really start working on pricing models. So that's the first area. So math is very effective because when you, your bank your, or your uh, corporate, you want to buy some financial uh, instruments, you have to know where is the price. It's easy to observe a stock in the market, but when it comes to more complex products, they just take one step for, uh, forward on the complexity, which is the option. You have to know how to price an option. So that's where the math comes in. Right? You actually have to be able to solve differential equations to get a you know, model price. Then you obviously adjust to the, your assumptions to fit into the market. So pricing model, which uh, Vasily and uh, many of uh, his colleagues can tell you more, which is very much a very interesting and challenging area. How do you price all these instruments? And when I say pricing, it's not in the narrow definition of just coming up with a price. When you build a pricing model, you also generate the risk parameters of these uh, instruments and how do you risk manage them. So that comes to the second part. So math is very useful in risk management, which I will give you some, uh, not quiz, questions after this slide. When you can see that risk management itself is very challenging, it's not a purely mathematical question, but yet math plays a very important role to quantify how much exposure you have. Then the third is trading strategies. Again, I think a lot of people with math background, or in general, people are looking for the so-called holy grail uh, trading strategies. It's almost like perpetual motion machines, right? People are looking for 100 years ago. You just turn it on, it makes money by itself. You go to sleep, you go on vacation, you come back, you have more in your bank account. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> that's not gonna happen. The, ro the robo-trader, Robotic trader is a dream. It has its place or its use, but it's a fast evolving market. You have to constantly you know, upgrade your research and uh, adjust your strategies. There's no such thing. You can build and leave it alone. It runs for itself forever. But I just want to mention that because maybe Towards the end of the term, you will feel, hmm, I came up with this a brilliant trading strategy. I think it's going to make money forever. Please let me know first. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to leave some time to Vasily. Actually, he, he can give you some examples of projects of last year's students who actually came to this class and did some real uh, application at Morgan Stanley. But before I hand it over to Vasily, let me ask you some questions. I just want to give you, not really to quiz you, just give you the sense how math and intuition and judgment can come into the same place. So let me first give you an example. So I call it risk aversion. So you, you are facing two choices, choice A and the choice B. Choice A being you have 80 chance to lose $500. You have 20% chance to win $500. It's pretty clear, right? So that's, that's choice A. 
for choice B, you basically just lock in. You have a 100% chance to lose $280. Let me ask you, for whoever likes to choose a choice A, please raise your hand. About six out of, say, let's call it the 50. Okay. So can I ask you why you think choice A makes sense? So I know it's a lower expected value, but I kind of enjoy gambling on the better the chance for Right. Because you don't want to lock in that $280 loss, right? That way you still have 20% chance to win. So, okay. Uh, for the ones who raised their hand for choice A, are there any other reasons? Same reason? Okay. Okay, I assume the rest of you will choose choice B, unless you, you neither. Okay, how many of you choose choice B? Okay, choice B, okay. And are there anybody think neither is right? So maybe they should have. <laughs> you, have no, you have to choose, okay. No, you have to choose, okay. So either choice A or choice B. So let me just talk a little bit about this. Again, I'm not trying to tell you which one is right, but I just share my thoughts how to look at these. Why I call risk aversion, right? So this is a very common uh, human behavior. When you go to the market, you buy a stock. When the stock goes up, makes a bit of money, the natural tendency for especially someone is new to the market is to, let's take, take profit, let's sell. Oh, I made $1,000, I made $500, let's go you know, have a nice meal or you know, whatever, right? buy an uh, iPad. But when the stock loses money, what's the natural tendency? That's, <laughs> I think natural tendency, a lot of people will keep it. I think uh, if you have the discipline to get out, that's great. And that's, you know, I, I mean, trading is really all about how, where do you, how do you risk manage, you know, have a discipline, and how to manage your losses, right? The natural tendency, a lot of people is, well, oh, I think there's a chance to, 20% chance to come back, I'm gonna make $500 more, right? Why do I want to lock in to stop myself out at 280, right? So, even though the expected value, as a lot of people, I think you, a lot of people said, you know, you lose expected value, which is $300 in choice A, but you would still, you know, not to choose choice B because you don't want to lock in the $280 loss. Again, I'm not trying to inject the idea to you of which one is right or wrong, but think about it, right? So that's really the, the common behavior which Mathematically, may not make sense, but that's a lot of people still would like to do, right? And also, really, when you think about it, it was depends on your situation. And uh, if you can, let's say, you think the market, I mean, I'm giving you the stock example again. If you're not purely following the discipline of stop loss, but you just think, you know, the fundamental picture has changed. You, you really don't think the stock is, should go up anymore. Obviously, at whatever level it should get out, right? Regardless how much loss you're locking. And, uh, but if you, if you think the fundamental story is still very sound, you should think about as if you don't have a position, what do you want to do next? So, but anyway, mathematically, I just want to see, it's actually, I think, I guess this is MIT. <laughs> so many people think mathematically, you know, you would uh, actually uh, choose choice B because that's low expectation, which makes sense. But I think if you ask a uh, larger audience, I think you probably, a lot of people don't really want to choose uh, choice B because they don't want to lock in the loss. Now let me change the question a little bit. So choice A becomes, instead of, the 80% chance to lose. Now you have 80% chance to win $500 and 20% chance to lose $500. Choice B, you have 100% chance to win $280. Who, choose, who would choose choice A? Again, minority of this audience. Let's say less than 10%, okay. Who would choose choice B? 
the rest of it. Okay. All right. Um, can someone uh, choose choice A? Give me uh, an argument. Why would you? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Anyone want to give me a reason for choice B? Higher shop. Yeah. Higher shop. Higher shop? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me just leave it here again. I think we can talk a bit more along in the class. I mean, the last day of the class, hopefully, we have much deeper discussion on this. It's not unique. The answer, okay, I think it can go either way. I mean, as, as you said. If your bank account balance is, let's say you're a freshman student, your bank account is uh, uh, $800, your choice will be very different from someone has $100,000 in his bank account. Okay? And uh, also your risk tolerance, right? How much you can, you can tolerate. I'm not going to give you, say, this is right or wrong. But with that, let me um, move on and give you some homework. So before I give you the homework, I want to uh, make a few more comments. So do people always learn from the experiences? You think, you know, in science, right, we collect evidence. We build models. We first understand the physics, we build mathematical models, then we verify in physics, doing experiments. But is that the same investigation process, process in finance? I mean, the market cycles are typically very long, but people tend to have short memories. Is, so how do people really learn from the experience? It's a very interesting question. And the very natural tendency is to extrapolate historical experience what happened in 2008, people still remember. What happened in uh, 1970s, maybe some people still remember. What happened 100 years ago, right? So people tend to extrapolate, join conclusions from very recent experience. And uh, deterministic relationship versus statistical relationship is very interesting as well. When you try to trade on those, how do you really build models? I mean, is the market really efficient? I mean, what is really, what part is efficient? You know, how do you really apply those theories in your day-to-day -day, uh, risk management or trading activities? And uh, sometimes people tend to oversimplify, right? Just say, oh, I can model this. You know, this is one important parameter. I just take that. So I just give you all the warnings that, uh, again, very young, new field, and uh, largely, often, this is art than science. So keep that in mind, even though we're talking about mathematics in finance. Math is very powerful and useful in finance. So learn the math, learn the finance first. But keep those questions along the way when you are learning during this class. OK, so suggested homework, optional. Just I mentioned a lot of uh, terminologies uh, today. Go to the course website, read what we have put up for the financial glossary. Right? So if you ha still have things you don't understand, make, compile your own list of financial concepts, which you can search on the web or even ask us. But I encourage you to do that. It will prepare you well. So that's really, uh, and uh, read other materials on the, on the course web. So we got uh, maybe, how about this? We still got about 15 minutes or 10 or 12 minutes left. So I pass it to uh, Vasily. Now maybe we can leave uh, five minutes for some yeah, questions. Right, yes. Yeah, OK, yeah. Just mention that, uh, that Apple trades now at 4.96, 4.6. When you were saying it yeah. was at 88. So. <laughs> Yeah, just a couple of examples. Well, first of all, no offense to the few people who were uh, who were. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to to give uh, an example of. Uh, of uh, 
Okay. okay. Yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, because he, he was working in, in our group, and it just will give you an, an idea of what, uh, what a little bit of an idea of what, what we will be talking about and what actually we do uh, in the daily life, or uh, what an intern or somebody who comes to, uh, to work uh, in this industry could do. And uh, one project is, uh, which Dushan uh, worked uh, was on estimating uh, the noisy derivative. Uh, the derivative is called delta. Delta is usually the first derivative to a function. And as we'll see uh, in the class, quite often to, to obtain a price, you, uh, you do it through Monte Carlo, meaning uh, running a lot of paths and then averaging uh, along, uh, along them. So it's a statistical method. So obviously, there, there is a noise uh, to, to, to your answer every time. So if you want to, uh, to differentiate uh, the, this function and get a derivative, uh, then uh, this derivative will be quite noisy. And so instead of getting the, the true derivative, you might obtain something quite different from two, two derivatives just because uh, there is a confidence interval around any, any point. And obviously, there is a trade-off here as well, because you can run more paths, throw more comp computational power, and uh, which will reduce your confidence interval. You, you will know uh, better where, where you are, more precise. Uh, or uh, the other uh, solution could be, if you know that your, your function is not too concave and reasonably flat, you might uh, the uh, do the numerical uh, differentiation on wider interval, basically reducing the significance of the error, right? And you would hope to arrive to, to, a, to a better approximation. So obviously, there is somewhere a balance. And the question was, uh, how uh, is there an optimal uh, shift size uh, to, obtain, uh, to, to get uh, the derivative? And that's what, oh, 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 the slide got corrupted. Right. Uh, so the, oh, the, there was a, quite a bit of mathematics involved and, and minimization and optimization. There was an answer, and that's actually what we uh, finally arrived at. Uh, and that's uh, some, some toy example. But still, it shows you that if you use constant size and uh, not optimal size, that, that would be your numerical derivative of this, uh, of this blue function. While the uh, while if you use the optimal shift size, which uh, which Dushan computed, it would be much smoother and much better. So that's one of example, uh, and that's what he did. And we actually are implementing it in our systems and plan uh, plan to use it uh, uh, in in practice. Another project uh, was actually quite different, and it was about electronic trading and basically uh, how to uh, better predict prices of, uh, of, uh, of currencies uh, and ex exchange rate. Funny enough, it was on ruble, uh, ruble US dollar, because it was uh, actually aimed for, for our Mos uh, Moscow office. Uh, and um, basically, what, what we had, we had the noise observation of broker data. Uh, and the, it, it was not. Uh, it was coming on at different non uh, non uniform times, basically at random times. So uh, we decided to use Kalmo filter and um, to uh, and uh, to study how it can predict. And yeah, that's one of uh, uh, of the nice graphs uh, Dushan produced. Uh, which, which again, uh, will be uh, we will use this this strategy and this the column filters which he constructed uh, in our uh, in our e-trading uh, uh, platform uh, in Moscow. All right, so uh, that's just a couple of examples which I wanted to give you and as, as a preview what we will be talking in the class. Uh, the uh, just to remind, so uh, the website is fully functional. Uh, I put syllable, uh, we put syllables there, uh, a, a short list of literature. Uh, the, we will be posting a lot of materials there. Uh, most, probably mostly le mo most lectures will be published there. Jake's slides are there already. So uh, 
Any questions? Yeah. His uh, handbag, uh, there's some uh, sign-up sheets, right? So we like to uh, get your emails so we can uh, put you on the website for the further announcements. But you can also you know, add yourself on yes. the website, I believe. But it's probably easier if you put your email on the sign-up sheet so we can... Uh, yeah, yeah but, but please please visit uh, and and uh, and sign up here yeah, because there will be announcements to the class. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh,